Have you ever thought back on your life and noticed that there are these small moments that led you to where you are today? I'm Alan Brooks from Building Momentum. In my new show, Breadcrumbs, I trace the pivotal moments of people's lives that lead them to where they are today. That I was asked to go backstage and I was able to meet Jesus. And I just very distinctly remember thinking, I want to do that. In the sunshine in this leather couch, I found my two big passions. I truly believe as an adult, I'm just trying to recreate that moment. It turns out that that was the beginning of a couple of decades in journalism. And that changed my life. Through storytelling and conversation, our show traces the circuitous trail of how the creatives and intellectuals of today got to where they are. On Breadcrumbs, we'll pick up these crumbs that were left behind and see how they led us to where we are today and leading us to who we're still becoming. Take a listen to Breadcrumbs, an exciting, independently run new podcast. So the Jakarta players were having auditions and they were looking for kids. I was a kid to play a penguin. And it was kind of like in this like big event room. So I go into this room. It's me, OG awkward me. Nobody likes me. And they sort of like group auditioned the kids for the role of the penguins. Obviously, it's a non-speaking part. It's movement based. <laughs> and I don't know what I did. I don't know what inspiration struck. All I knew is that I captured the attention of every person in the room. And it was such an astounding moment for me because I had never experienced anything like that before in my life. Because I truly believe as an adult, I'm just trying to recreate that moment. I'm trying to recreate that feeling like over and over again with varying degrees of success of just being like, I know how to capture the attention of a room. Welcome to Breadcrumbs. I'm Alan Brooks. I'm the Chief Creative Officer at Building Momentum. We are a creative problem-solving company. So we believe that everyone has a calling, a vibration, something undeniable that is inside of us. And sometimes that calling is made apparent to us really early, and we lock in and we follow it our whole lives. Sometimes life gets in the way. The truth of it is that that calling is always there. And this show retraces those things, these things we call breadcrumbs. Moments in our lives that lead us back to ourselves and who we're meant to be. They can help us find that true calling. We're going to be talking to a whole variety of people from interesting backgrounds and histories and figure out how they responded to their true north. We're going to unpack this through storytelling and conversation. And I hope that everyone listening can start thinking about what your calling is, what your true north is, and whether or not you're headed in that direction. So let's follow these crumbs back to see where we began and who we're still becoming. Today's guest is Melanie Maras, a multi-ethnic playwright, storyteller, and comedian from Jakarta, Indonesia, originally, who has a special ad on Tubi called Brash Girls Club, and you should watch it. It is hilarious. So we found Melanie through Adrian Todd. She's a second-gen breadcrumber. Adrian Todd's episode is episode four. You should listen to that if you haven't already. And Melanie, to Adrian Todd's recommendation, does not disappoint We have this really great conversation. Her story and her path is way more roundabout than some of the other people that we speak to. I think mainly because being a stand-up wasn't a thing that she even necessarily knew was in the wheelhouse of things that were possible when she was a kid. And she certainly didn't have the same kind of support that people do. She came up in stand-up at a time where you could still tell your parents who wanted to be a stand-up and they wouldn't necessarily know that it was a thing that was possible. So it takes 
her a while to figure out clearly what she wanted to do. But now she's on it and that thing that she wants to do or that thing that she wants out of life. But now that she's locked in, she knows no other way to be. Her mics dip in and out a little bit, so bear with us, but it's an absolutely worthwhile conversation. And let's just jump in right now and and pick up some breadcrumbs. So I grew up in Jakarta, Indonesia. I know I sound like I'm Malibu Barbie, but that's because I went to an international school. My dad is from a tiny village in Sumatra, and my mom is from a tiny village in Oklahoma. And my dad is Muslim. My mom is Baptist. That obviously makes me, you know, a huge disappointment to both of them. And when I was growing up, I just, I didn't feel like special or extraordinary in any way. You know, and my dad was really fond of telling me that I had a terrible personality. And when I was 10, he gave me a copy of Dale Carnegie's book, which is called How to Win Friends and Influence People. So honestly, I don't don't know what he expected me to do with that in grade five. I'm not sure if he thought like, I'm going to put this to good use, like on the tetherball court. I just don't know. But there was something called the Jakarta Players in when I was growing up, and this was like in the expat community, and it was this British theater group, and they love to put on British pantomime. So if you're not familiar with British pantomime, basically it's a very gregarious live stage show, you know, based around a traditional story. In this case, it was Cinderella. And traditionally, the female lead role is always played by a male. I don't know how that has progressed. It's a very beloved kind of entertainment And they always will put in, like, crazy elements that don't exist in the traditional story. And they'll use, like, current pop songs. And it's just super, super fun. And it's generally done around Christmas time. So the Jakarta players were having auditions for Cinderella. And they were looking for kids. I was a kid. To play a penguin because, you know, obviously there are a lot of penguins in Cinderella. And the auditions were at a place called the American Club, which is a real place because, you know, colonialism existed. And I go to the American Club and it was kind of like in this like big event room. And listen, I was an awkward kid. Okay. I wasn't, I mean, I know that a lot of people say that, but I mean, I really, I was awkward. And like, now it's like quite chic for like a young girl to be awkward. You know, now it's like an awkward young girl. She might sit front row at fashion week. She might guest edit Vogue. You know what I mean? I was OG awkward. Nobody found me adorable. Nobody liked me. That's what awkward used to mean. That was me. So I go into this room. It's me, OG awkward me. Nobody likes me. And To be honest, I don't even know what they sort of like group auditioned the kids for the role of the penguins. Obviously, it's a non-speaking part. It's movement based. (laughs) And I don't know what I did. I don't know what inspiration struck. All I knew is that I captured the attention of every person in the room. And it was such an astounding moment for me because I had never experienced anything like that before in my life. And I also knew that the other kids, they just didn't have it. You know what I mean? And I could just know, I was just like, oh, I can, I know how to like have every eye trained on me. I know how to be like compelling and I know how to attract all of this like adult interest in me. All these other kids are just losers or doing dumb kid things. And I just in that moment knew in a, in a way that I couldn't express or put into words, but I was like, I have something special inside of me. And of course I got cast as a penguin. And I just think of that, it's such a fond memory for me. And it was also such a landmark moment in my life because I truly believe as an adult, 
I'm just trying to recreate that moment. I'm trying to recreate that feeling like over and over again with varying degrees of success of just being like, I know how to capture the attention of a room, which is a truly egotistical, horrible way to live your life. Here we are. That's incredible. When was the first time then as an adult, I'm just going to jump to now and go back. When was the first time that you kind of recognized that you were feeling the same way? And it was a very convoluted path because I just like loved alcohol. I loved drugs. I loved boys. I like strangers, like getting into cars. Like I was just every day I was just like, how can I tempt death? So I, I just wasn't, I wasn't really like trying to pursue anything, to be honest, except for a good time, which is yeah. inevitably turned out to be a very bad time every time. So it took me a really, really long time to get back to that place that I was as a little penguin. And I would say the first time I felt it again was actually when I started doing storytelling. Our friend Kevin Allison, back in the day, he offered this class, this storytelling class. And it was like Risk had just kind of become mm-hmm. quite popular as a live show. I don't even think I've been going that long, maybe like one year. And yeah. so it was one of the very first classes he ever taught. And I had never written down words and then spoken those words myself. Like I had never written a story of, from my own personal experience and then said those words out loud. And it was such an incredible experience. And I think that's the first time I, I, w- I was like, oh, I, I, this feeling has come back to me. You know, and then once I felt it as an adult, yeah. then it was like, wow, great. Well, this is what I do now. Yeah. So how did you find yourself in New York making terrifically bad decisions and chasing good feelings, but not professional good feelings? Like, how did you figure out, like, why did you step into that class in the first place with Kevin? What was the thing that drew you in that said, like, oh, there's something in that room for me? Because that's, that's a an important. Thanks. I'm trying. <laughs> Good job. Well, I thank you. Well, first I lived, well, I went to four different universities, if you could call them universities. So I was, you know, I was all over the place. I was here. I was there. I went to like Boston University for a year. Then I went to a school in Southern California for a year. And I didn't realize that Orange County and LA weren't the same place. I also failed my driving test two times. So then I was like trying to take the bus and you cannot be taking the bus in Southern California. For those of you who take the bus, I truly feel for you. It is no place. We all know how it turned out. I saw speed. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It is just like that. I wish I had met Keanu and also my death on the bus. You know what I mean? I was like, I don't, uh, this isn't, I can't do this. Anyway, so then I moved to England. I went to two different universities. I'm using quotes in England. I was really, I wasn't pursuing anything at that point. You know what I mean? It's like my boyfriend was a drug dealer. Like, you know, I was like doing ecstasy four times a week. You know, the fact that I can put a sentence together, let's be honest, is a miracle. And I was like studying media (laughs) production. And it's crazy because at the school that I went to, it doesn't exist anymore. It was called the- I went to one of those. You did? Which one did you go to? Trump University? Funnily enough, it was called the Center for Digital Imaging Arts at Boston University. Oh. They licensed the name from BU and Where was it? Had was a, it online? It was in DC. Oh, it was in DC. It was it was like a nine month intensive for three D animation because I thought I was gonna get into video game design. Did you? I t- no. no. Oh. Well because I'm here. <laughs> I mean good effort though. 
it was it was it was a noble it was a valiant effort but so so how so i have so many oh my god i have so many questions because and i want to get back to how why you knew that there was something in that room for you in the first place but like so you you were in indonesia you were 10 Mm. in pantomime yes you know blah 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 high school was that still in indonesia when did you leave indonesia yeah, I, I graduated high school in Indonesia. Okay. Then I went to Boston for one year. Why I do, Boston? I ne- well, it's a, it's a good question. So BU markets very, very aggressively to international students. So oh. they don't all do that. It wasn't like now where we have so much information at our fingertips at all times. It was kind of just like, oh, I've heard of this university. The person came to my school. I guess I'll apply there. And it, would, and it yeah. was so many... International students would go to Boston, obviously not just for BU. It was like BC, Babson, Harvard, MIT, whatever the hell else they have there. There was just so much. And also there was like a massive like Asian population of Mm -hmm. of students in Boston. So it I don't know. It seemed like a good idea. I also didn't apply to very many schools. Like the other school I had applied to was like Syracuse University. Don't ask me why. I don't know. Did I know where Syracuse was? Absolutely not. And Thank God you didn't go to Syracuse, though. I know. Could and you imagine? Is, no, I couldn't. I mean, I, I wouldn't be here today, uh, you know, holding a microphone, a true cry for help in, in a, a living room in Echo Park. Okay, well, I shouldn't have said where I live, but um, it's okay. I, you definitely <laughs> live in North Hollywood. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> definitely live in Venice. Yeah. I wouldn't be holding this microphone in Mar Vista if <laughs> I... If I'd gone to Syracuse. Well, yeah. actually, I had applied to, I think at the time, they had a very good, like, journalism school or some kind of, like, I don't know what kind of school. And I had gone with my dad on this solo father-daughter trip, which I don't recommend to anyone. It was it was kind of like a one-time-only thing for us. You uh-huh. know, we, we, we're not close like that, you know? So we had gone to Boston University to go look at it. We had gone to go look at Syracuse University. And then I think I only applied to one other school, which I don't even remember what it was. Maybe it was like in Chicago. And Mm -hmm. honestly, I don't think I got in. And at Syracuse, we went in the dead of winter. School was not even on. I had not even done winter. I grew up in the tropics. I didn't even on the equator. You know what I mean? And also it's like, I don't know what the flights are now. At the time, it was a very small plane that took you from wherever. We probably were flying from Boston or maybe we were flying yeah, from New York. Yeah. I can't remember. It was this tiny plane. And it was like horrific turbulence. And I was and I was literally just like, oh, this is it. This you know is how I, I mean? die. Yeah. This is how I die. I said, I am actually going to die a virgin with my father. You know? Like, this is, you know, so I already didn't want to go to Syracuse because I was like, this isn't meant to be. You yeah. know? Then we get to Syracuse. It's the dead of winter. The town of Syracuse, I'm sorry to anyone who may live there or be from there, it's bleak. It's very bleak. Everything was covered in snow. There was no students there. And, like, you know, my dad was like, you're going to go to this school. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what happens to everybody, right? They go to their first college and someone, whether it's the parent or the kid, gets, like, that's colleges do that. That's their job is to, like, create this illusion of wonder for everyone touring that it's like, this is the magical place that will take you into the next phase of your life. So of course he wanted you to go there because it was the first place you saw and everyone loves the oh, first totally. place. And also it's like the journalism school at the time, like, you know, it was supposed to be like one of the top ones in the country. It was very impressive. You know, it's like they had their own studio, they had their own, whatever the heck they do there. And it was like all of these famous, like, CNN reporters like had like headshots on the wall. They had all like gone there. And my dad's like, that's going to be 
you. And I was like, I don't even want to work for CNN. So yeah, so I was hoping and praying that I wouldn't get in there. And then they didn't accept me into that school, but then they accepted me into like the school of social work. Why did I apply for a school of social work? Look at me. I'm not a social worker, you know, but, but you and I was been. like, it could have been, I could have been a social worker in Syracuse. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? The people of Syracuse could have, could have used you, you know, could have really used me, you know, I mean, I hope at the very least they would have shipped me off somewhere else where I might've been more useful. But so, yeah, so I was like, well, I'm absolutely not going to the school of social work in Syracuse. I was like, if I can't like get rich and famous in Syracuse, which would be the only reason to go, I'm not going to help other people, you know, who are in need. That's not for me. So did you feel like that though? I want to dig on that a little bit. Like, did you Mm. think that even like in your heart of hearts, knowing that like you, you had this taste of fame for lack of a better term at 10, where you had this moment of all these people like, locking into you yeah did that carry you through that like even in this college search that you were like oh if i come to america if i go to college i can touch that feeling again was fame was the idea of performance even on the car in the cards for you as you started this college career because journalism is is certainly at that time i assume we're about the same age like that was when like journalism as fame was starting to show up as well So was that flirting around in your brain at all? You know, I didn't know what I wanted to do at that time. And I was like, like, I loved acting. I loved the theater. I had, you know, I'd done like loads of like plays in high school. Mm -hmm. And my dad made it really clear. He was like, that's not a career. Like, that's a hobby. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I can't apply to any drama schools. You know, I guess that. So I was like, well, I don't know. What's the closest thing? I was like, communications, like media. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't even know what was the outcome of either of those things, honestly. I didn't know what I wanted. I was confused. Yeah. I don't know. The social work thing, well, that was a real stab in the dark for me, to be honest. And also, I had a horrible guidance counselor at my high school, my very fancy international high school. I had a terrible guidance counselor. And I thought that it was just me. And then, like, later talking to friends, like, years later, they were like, oh, no. Like, he, like it was like, so he told me not to apply to NYU because I'd never get in. Meanwhile, anyone who can afford the tuition at NYU undergraduate can get in. Sorry. Sorry to break it to you. Um, I would have 100% gotten in. I have the saddest thing to say right now. What? You didn't get into NYU? I didn't get into NYU. I applied and didn't get in. I don't know if I could. I probably couldn't have afforded to go there either. So maybe they knew that, and that's the story I'm going to tell myself after this conversation so I can sleep tonight. But yeah, I I did not get into New York. University's Tisch School of the Arts. Yeah, no, like I, I wanted mean, to. I'm sorry. Guess what? I didn't even apply because my guidance counselor was like, "You're too stupid. They don't want you." And I was we like, "See, in the in the spirit of this, we wouldn't have even had we both gone to NYU, we would never been having this conversation, right? We would have never gotten here. It would have yeah. put us on totally different paths. So forget yeah. NYU. Screw totally. NYU. I know. Well, Nobody likes NYU. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Please. So, yeah, so I didn't even uh, apply to NYU because he's like, you'll never get in. So I, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Anyways, I got into BU. I thought it was a good school. Like, it, it, like the School of Communications was supposed to be really good. I didn't know what I wanted to communicate. So you go to BU, you bou- and then you bounce around for a few years. Yeah. Can you kind of quickly tell me how you got from BU to New York, ultimately? Because that's where I really want to get into yes. it, because that seems to be, like, yeah. where— this this part of you reconnected to that other part of you and you figured it out a little bit to like set you on this path to where you are now. 
So I was living in London. I had graduated from a university that was not a university at all. I had studied media production. Again, not a degree in anything. And I was like, had overextended my student visa. So I'm living there, working there illegally. I was working as a promoter for a nightclub. It was it was bad. And I was in this relationship and we were supposed to get married, like just very low key, very low key, not tell our parents kind of thing. And I had also like auditioned to be on a reality show. And then I got cast on the reality show. And then I got terrified that I was going to get disowned for being, you know, on the reality on show. The reality show. So then I backed out of the reality show. I'm in this relationship with this guy that I then I backed out of the getting married to him. And I was just like, I need a fresh start. You know, I was like, I can't legally live in this country. I have an American passport. I can live legally in the US. Why don't I give it a try? Yeah. So I just like blindly moved to New York. I went to a drama school in New York called Maggie Flanagan Studio. Meisner based, if that means anything to you. Uh, a lot. Quite. I was also Meisner trained. <laughs> Quite. At the Meisner drama school I went to, they had at the very end, it was we kind of like would do these workshops. One of them was like playwriting for actors. And that's actually how I met my writing mentor, Stephen Adley Girgis. And that was the first time I was like, oh, maybe I could like write, you know? And then a bunch of us kids from the drama school, we started a theater company together. And of course, nobody knew how to do anything. You know, we're all like useless actors. Yeah. And so it's like people had to be like, okay, well, I'll write something or I'll direct something or I'll learn how to produce or like, you know, whatever. So we put up one horrible production. And then I was kind of like, okay, well, you know what? I think I could write a play. And I think I can convince Steven to direct it. And then I'm going to convince you to produce it. And then I did. That was like the first time since the Penguin moment that I was really like, oh, okay, you know what? Like, this is like why God made me is like to write. So I had like my first play produced in New York. And it was awesome. And I had like a great review in Variety and I had all this sort of like a lot of interest in me, which was crazy because I'd never like written anything before except for like papers in high school. Yeah. So then I also was kind of like, okay, great. Now I'm going to be a famous writer. And then, you know, nothing happened. And I also was like, I don't know how I pursue a career in writing. Well, now what am I doing? And I was like, yeah. I'll go to grad school. So then I only applied to three grad schools because I'm all, I always just like, why? Because you didn't learn your lesson. I didn't learn my lesson the first time around, you know? <laughs> and I just said, who needs to apply to more than three? And the three places I applied to were Yale, sure, Juilliard, and NYU, you know? You and I was like, NYU is my backup. I said, those losers, they'll take anybody. <sighs> My first rejection letter was from NYU. So, <laughs> Again, screw NYU. Nobody likes NYU. Yeah, sc screw NYU. It's a garbage and, like, school for garbage people. I was just like, who wants to give you 50 grand a year for this dumb <laughs> whatever degree it is? I don't even know what the degree is. An MFA, I guess, you know? So I was like, okay, great. I said, I didn't get into grad school. I don't know how to pursue a career as, as a writer I was living with a boyfriend at the time where we were incredible. Like, I was so unhappy. I didn't know how to leave the relationship. And I think just in a moment of kind of just desperation and seeking, I found this storytelling class and decided to take it. And, like, that was the beginning. And I was really, like, at a rock bottom, honestly. That's how I found it. And it yeah. was, like, things just started to turn around for me in that class. Like, I met a girl who was my writing partner for some time after that. I met the guy who I cheated on my boyfriend with, and then I had a relationship with after my boyfriend. We ended up moving to Los Angeles together. 
I had my, I got my first reps right after that. So it, it was a real tipping point for me, honestly. That's really interesting because it seems like professionally you were always trying to find a home or a fit, right? That there is like, it sounds like you tried all these different things and like you found yourself fitting in a couple of different places, but now as a stand-up, do you still consider yourself a writer? I guess is what the question I'm actually getting to, because, you know, you, you found this thing after Maggie Flanagan of writing and being, you know, an accomplished playwright and getting all this notoriety, which was the thing you were chasing at 10 again. And then you found yourself in Kevin's class and there's more writing there. And now you're still writing. Do you consider yourself a writer still, or do you consider yourself something else or is it something new or different? I would say I'm primarily a writer Mm -hmm. and that is what I do the most of professionally. And I mean, honestly, thank God, because last year, I don't know what I would have done, you know, really not being able to perform outside of Zoom. And I know a lot of people were able to be really inventive and to pivot and figure out how to do shows online and like, you know, really doing a lot more podcasting, et cetera. But I really just buckled down and focused on on my writing. And that's, yeah, that, yeah I'm, I am happy with that choice. It sounds like you found this capacity for change and adjustment and adaptation to either chaos or change or something. Because, you know, you look at leaving your home and traveling across the world to part of the coldest part of our country to live in Boston for a year and then shifting, shifting, shifting. You're in New York, you're in LA, you're writing, you're changing, you know, you in the pandemic, you shifted gears again. Like, where do you think that capacity comes from that, that kind of adaptation, that the ability to pivot during change? You know, I don't think I'm very good at pivoting during change. I feel like if I was better at pivoting during change, like I would have figured out how, like I would have like done shows outside. I would, I would have, you know, I would have been like, I'll go to yeah. somewhere where they don't care about don't the vaccine. That. I'll perform don't, there. Don't you know, I'll go to, I'll go to Texas. I'll go to Utah. A lot of people did it. A lot of people just said, let me take my ass to Texas. You know, I feel like that I, I, I would have been more adaptive if I, if I had done those things. That's interesting you see that because it feels, I mean, the way you tell the story, it sounds like you're constantly changing and trying something new and adjusting to either situations that you found yourself in because of your own choices or situations that were put upon you. Or it's funny that you have that perception of yourself because it seems to, from my outside perspective, and I've known you for all of, you know, 36 minutes, it seems like you've got it's that. Been a little longer. Well, okay, look, minutes, okay? listen, don't, Stella Short. Listen, 38 minutes. I am here we, for it. I, I think it's at least 46 because we did have some pre-roll. It's true. Before you recorded. So You're right. And that's where the- at an hour. That's where the real gold other. is, is in the pre-roll. Yeah. Listen, I, I'm an ideas machine, Okay. This is one of my So that's where it comes talents. from because you're an ideas machine. That's where it is because you're because it, it sounds like you're always trying to find the best way to get out of your brain what you're trying to say. You know, I don't know much about your play. I didn't get a chance to to read it or look into it. I read a little bit about it before this, but like those were a bunch of you ideas. You read about that, my play? I did. I I, I did what, my oh, research. Wow. What did you what did you read about my play? Did they say anything good? It was whatever you said about your play on your website. Was it was it very complimentary? It was. It was incredibly complimentary. <laughs> it was. Did they love it? it was, they <laughs> loved it. 
<laughs> no, it's it's not that good actually. I mean, it's the first thing I wrote. Like my my stuff now is way better. Well, so so, you know. so are you writing plays still? Or are you? No, no. I want to be rich. <laughs> uh, I have got dollar signs in my eyes. Do you think I'm interested in writing for the theater? Absolutely not. There are a number I, of very well to do playwrights. Most of they them are old white guys. For TV and film also. I mean, are we, who are we talking about? Neil LeBute, John Patrick Shanley. Who are we talking about? Who are our, our playwrights who are making money? Say my right. Neil LeBute again. I love my, I love some Neil LeBute. I do. Do you? Well, I, I, I. He's a bit of a predator. Yeah. I mean, the thing about Neil LeBute, and we can cut all this out, Adrian, later, but is, um, is that I was a cisgendered heterosexual white dude in my 20s in the early 2000s. And so. You know, creators like Neil Butte and Kevin Smith and all that were such in the zeitgeist that it just, like, hit me hard. I truthfully, uh, if we're going to talk about uh, that that ilk of playwright, uh, Kenneth Lonergan is actually my... Oh, yeah, Kenneth Lonergan. He's amazing. But, he makes films, too. That's the thing. He but I was going to say, then he, he made that hard shift to, to, to movie making and didn't really look mm-hmm. back. But... Because he got that... You got that money, you know, and why would he look back? So is that why you aren't looking for looking for a playwright? Is it truth, truthfully that you just didn't see a career path there? No, you know what? I thought I would always be a playwright. Like the theater is really my first love, as we know, starting with the Cinderella yeah. pantomime. You know, I love the theater. But, you know, in Los Angeles, the theater sucks. And I had a really bad experience when I first moved here. And I wrote a play that I wanted to put up here. And that just, after that happened, I was like, well, we're done here. I said, we're closing the door on this playwriting. And I, that I'm not looking back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why did you move to LA? Mm-hmm. So you and your, the guy you were dating, that you were dating your girlfriend, and then you moved to LA. Why did you guys move to LA? Yeah, I would. I just had this feeling. I was like, I mean, also, there does come a time in, in your, your New York life where you feel like you have to leave otherwise you're going to skin yourself alive. And I had kind of reached that boiling point and I was like, it's time to make a move, you know? And so I booked this two week trip to LA and I was just like, I don't know anything about Hollywood. I don't know anything about LA or managers or agents or anything, but I'm just going to see what I can do in two weeks. And I shamelessly messaged, emailed, social media anyone I knew who had any relation like to the entertainment industry or Hollywood. And I was like, I would literally just be like, Hey, I heard your brother's friend's mother is an agent. Do you think she would meet with me? And I just did that to so many people. And I, I was just totally relentless. And so it's like, by the time I, I went on that trip, it's like I had signed with managers. I had signed with agents. I was taking generals at like studios and I was just, I had like stars in my eyes. I said, well, this is it. <laughs> this is how it works. You show this up in LA works. for two yeah, weeks you show and up. then you are suddenly yeah, successful. You have barely driven a car before, you know, you're getting into accidents in the Trader Joe's parking lot because you have not ever driven a car before because you took a driving test in New York where your Filipino driving instructor took you because he said they pass everyone and sure. no one else will pass you. So I'm going to take you to this place. And, and, you know, and, and I was like, well, this is it now. You know, I was just like, 
I'm gonna, and they were also, they were like, why do you want to write for the theater? Like, they, they were like, don't you want to write for TV and film and be rich and famous? And I was like, of course I do. Yeah, I do. And so I moved her and I was like, well, I was like, I will be attending the Oscars next year as a nominee because I'm an idiot. So that's how I moved here. You just have, you just have ambitions, you have goals, you have to manifest things, right? Isn't that what yeah, we're supposed really to do? do? Yeah. What's on your, what's on your vision board? Besides getting me to come perform in Virginia, I'm kidding. That's that's the only thing. It's just going to be your headshot <laughs> in my office above my computer for the night. It's not. That doesn't sound weird at all. You won't. I mean, you're not the only one. <laughs> that's good. That's important. So, how did comedy become the medium for you? You know, was the play that you wrote was that funny? Was it? Was it a? Was it a comedy? It. Definitely had funny moments. I was I would say dramedy is really my forte. So extremely dark comedy. It's always a mix of of moments with like a lot of heart and also a lot of humor. I would feel I, I would say that's my strong suit. And did that thread kind of play through the whole career? Has that been part of your life storytelling and now your comedy? I did watch your special. You watched that? I, of course I did. I oh my did God. my research. That was so nice of you. Of course. I can't believe you watched that. Oh yeah, it sucks. I had to for work watch a half hour of comedy. Oh man, that's hard. So yeah, I mean, and there's definitely some darkness in that special. So is is that a through line of of your comedy is that it is it is dark comedy? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is dark. It is dark. And a lot of times I have to, I got I have to scale back because people say it's too much, Melanie. It's too much. We don't want your incest jokes, okay? So <laughs> I have to really, I've got to reel myself in because for me, I think it's really funny, you know, but not everyone thinks that. Is that something that you do to process the darkness? Because with your comedy is very much about yourself in your own life. Is it, is that how you like, oh, this, this fucked up thing happened. Now I'm going to like talk about it and, and recognize and pull out the funny from it to be able to like help process and, and examine it for myself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, comedy is a survival tactic for so many people. I think that's how most people get into it. I mean, not everyone. Some people suck. That are like, help. We, we can't all be funny, you know? I, yeah, no, for sure. For sure. It's a, it's a, it's a processing tool. It's a healing tool. It's also a way to, as you said, prior, like it is a way to touch people, you know, and there is something about being vulnerable and sharing your shame, whether it's on stage or on, on the page or in something that you make that people watch that really makes people feel less alone, you know? And it's also really liberating for me to be able to say these things. You said it was healing. Is it healing for you or is it, or do you feel like you are being a healer? in sharing these ideas and letting people know that they're not alone and maybe feeling the same way about a situation or about something like that or both. Well, you know, here in Los Angeles, a lot of people do think that they're healers and I absolutely do not think that I, I, I would, I would say comedy is healing for me. And in the process, I think that is, that's a, that's something that touches other people. I think it's something that other people feel deeply and profoundly unless they think, I'm not funny and I'm not interesting and they don't care for my content at all. In which case it's not for them. So when you decided to try comedy, you gave yourself a year to just like full out, throw yourself into it. What was that year like? Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, definitely. So basically, I always knew I was a funny person, but I just didn't think I was professionally funny. I always sort of viewed stand-up and sketch and improv. I was like, that's just something very different from me that I just don't have that. But it was always this itching inside of me of like, I, I, I want to try stand-up. I want to try stand-up. I was so terrified of it. Even after doing storytelling for years and feeling really, really comfortable with storytelling, I, I just was still so terrified of stand-up because they're very different. And I would say my stand-up style is quite storytelly. Like, I'm not a, a one-liner. I don't do punchy jokes. you, you got to really stick with me. You know, I'm like, you got to pay attention because it's, it's going to come around. It's going to take a while, but it will come around, you know? So, you know, not everyone has that kind of patience and that's okay because there's a different kind of comedy for different different kinds of people. But the first time I kind of like really got that inkling was when I was in drama school, I was doing this really intense, really dramatic, like Tennessee Williams scene. And I thought like, oh, I'm going to be like a re- an intense actor, you know, and I'm doing this scene. I'm weeping, 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 weeping. I have snot coming out of my nose, you know, and like the scene ends and like Maggie Flanagan, my teacher, my mentor, um, she was like, okay, so you're a comedian. Ah. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> I was like, what is she seeing yeah. from this scene that, and, and, and so that was kind of like really, that really planted this seed that wouldn't go away inside of me because I was like, Oh, she's, she's, she's seen something. I'm trying to achieve something totally opposite from comedy. And if she's drawing comedy out of that performance, you know, well, Maggie Flanagan knows what she talk, yeah. was talking about. So I was so scared. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. Then I had this, professional experience that I found like a very, like a very disillusioning professional moment where basically this woman who I was friends with, she was a TV agent and at a big agency and she had seen me perform this solo show I I had done. And she was like, Hey, I want to rep you come to the agency, come for a meeting. So I went I met the other women on her team and they were like, you're going to be our ethnic Whitney Cummings. You're a visionary. You're going to have multiple shows on the, on the air at the same time. And I was like, great, let's start today. And she was like, there's just one problem. I hate your managers and I share clients with them. So you need to fire them because like we already have like some bad blood over other clients of theirs that I've signed and then gotten new managers and you just have to fire them. And I said, well, do I, is that necessary? You know, and she was like, well, I'm not going to start working with you until you fire them. In fact, I'm going to do you a oh favor. I'm going to call them and let them know that you're going to fire them. So she did that. I had a horrible feeling about it. Horrible feeling about yeah. it. Yeah. And then, and she was like, what managers do you want? Tell me your dream managers. I told her and she said, personal friend, no problem. On speed dial. And she was like, we're going to start setting these meetings for you next week. Like, you know, all you have to do is fire your managers and we're going to be off to the races. She's like, we're going to have a very busy summer. I hope you're ready. And so she fires my managers. I call them to tell them I'm quitting you. I've been gaslit Yeah, exactly. And they were like, well, yeah, we know. She already told us. And I was like, okay, so then – I go back to my now agent and I was like, okay, well, you know, I fired them. I did it. I'm ready. Like, let's start setting these manager meetings. And she was like, do you have to write a new pilot? 
before you can meet with managers. No managers are going to want to meet with you. So why don't you get your pilot ideas together? I said, okay, sure. All right. And so I get these ideas together. I'm trying to involve her in the process. I'm like, which one of these ideas do you like? And she just kept putting off this meeting, like putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. It was got to the point where she had her assistant ghosting me. And so finally I was, I was, we were supposed to have a meeting to talk about these ideas. I'm driving in the car to her office and the assistant calls and is like, Hey, we actually need to turn it into a phone meeting. And I was like, I'm on Olympic Boulevard, you know? And so she comes on the phone and I can hear she's just reading through the document that I've sent her like probably six weeks ago, like while she's on the phone with me. And she was like, not that one, not that one, not that one. She goes, okay, write this one about your family. I say, okay, great. I go away. I write this pilot about my family. And then I read on deadline that she has left the agency and she is now working at a production company. She's no longer in. I hate everything about this whole story. She's like no longer in talent representation anymore. She doesn't respond to any of my emails. She doesn't respond to any of my phone calls. She doesn't respond to any of my text messages, like nothing. And I didn't even have really like the contact details of those other two women I had met with. I only knew her. And so I'd like, was like desperately trying to reach out to them. And they were kind of like, whatever, like, you know, I don't care. Um, <laughs> and so I was like, oh, wow. Like I have no representation. Like people in this city have no integrity. Their word has no meaning. It's like words just fly out of their mouth and it's like, it never happened. They don't even, no one means what they say. And so I kind of like went through this moment where I was like, I want to do something that I am in control of, you know, and I want to do something. I don't have to ask anyone for permission for. So that's kind of like when I made this decision of like, I'm going to do stand up because nobody can stop me from doing it. And I'm a hundred percent in control of my destiny. And I am 100% control of like whether or not I become good at this and whether or not I become successful at this. And so that's when I gave myself a year to just full out go for it. You know, and I really thought like, I never want to look back one day and wonder like, what if I had tried, you know? So, and I told myself, if I'm not good, if I, if I, I suck, you know, or like, I don't enjoy it after a year, I never have to do it again. And I never have to think about it again. And I'll just know that I did it. But and yeah, and I, so I started that year and I was like, oh, I don't know how you write a set. I don't know how you book shows. I don't know how yeah. to take a microphone out of the stand. Uh, I was like, <laughs> I don't know anything. And then by the end of that year, I was in Helsinki, Finland. I was performing in the Laugh Factory had this ridiculously named thing. It was called the Funniest Person in the World competition. And it was... Oh my God, are you the funniest person in the whole world? Well, I should be, but I didn't... I mean, but for me in that moment, it was a crowning moment. You know, this was before, you know, it had all gone to shit. And, but, you know, it was it was incredible. And so, yeah, at that point, I had headlined a, a charity show in Indonesia. I had headlined some other shows. I was getting paid to perform. And I was like, okay, you know, I think I think I'm doing this. That's awesome. Real quick, two questions. That's it. So let's pretend there's a parallel universe. And maybe you didn't go to, maybe you went to NYU. Maybe you got in. Or you went to Syracuse. So in that parallel universe, what are you doing that you're not in this one? Okay. Well, I think if I had gone to Syracuse, I would be even more depressed than I was otherwise, which is hard to imagine. And I think that I would not have lasted. I think at most I would have lasted a year. 
And I think what I would have done is I would have gone back to my ex from London who had moved to Montreal where he was from because his, he, his father was um, the president of a very successful lingerie company. And Syracuse is really close to Montreal. So I think what I would have done is I would have just left the dorm, probably gotten on a bus because let's be honest, Walked, walked across, across the border. The border. I, don't, I didn't know how to drive at that point. Still can barely drive. And I would have just been like, okay, let's do this. I would have married him. I would have popped out two kids immediately. And we'd now be in a polyamorous marriage, which is what he is, I believe, in with his current wife. Yeah. Known for. That's a marked difference. I would be a, a cold polyamorous mom. I'd be eating poutine. A cold polyamorous mom. Yeah, because I live in Montreal. Yeah. Okay, so last question. That's not the world you went, you lived in. That's not the, the history you've had. So d- how does the Melanie that stepped into that room in Indonesia to do British pantomime, how does she feel about who you've become now? Honestly, I think she'd be pretty impressed. That's awesome. That's the, that's the best we can hope for, right? <laughs> We impress our younger yeah. selves. This was great. Melanie, thank you so much. This is like the most fun one of these I've done. Thanks, guys. This was super fun. I really enjoyed it. If you were inspired by what we talked about today, you might be inspired by what our company, Building Momentum, does. We solve for impact. We're a creative problem-solving agency that helps people gain the confidence and permission to solve problems on their own using a whole variety of tools to do so. 3D printing, laser cutting, welding, empathy, facilitation, drones, uh, electronics, robotics, dance, podcasts. If you have a problem, like we all do, we would love to be a part of solving it with you. Find us on the web at www.buildmo.com. That's www.buildmo.com. I'm going to just move him. He's keeping it real here. Mishu, you're a bad boy, okay? You're a very bad boy. You, this is bad, bad, bad podcast. What kind of dog Nishu. is Nishu? A spoiled one. Um, he, <laughs> he's, a, he's a French bulldog. Oh. He's he's like he's a total f boy. Like he knows he's really good looking. And he acts awful because he knows he can get away with it. That's okay. extraordinary. Yeah, he's a total f boy. I'm in a toxic relationship with my dog. Um, Leave it in, okay. Adrian. Leave all of this in. I want every <laughs> single minute of this. 